Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Beloved, our reading today comes to us from the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is the fifth of 12 Old Testament books that bear the names of the minor prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Unlike other Old Testament prophetic books, however, Jonah is not a collection of the prophet's oracles, but primarily a narrative steeped in poetry, mystery, metaphor, comedy, and the adventures of a man named Jonah, a recalcitrant prophet. Now, according to the opening verse, Jonah is the son of Amittai, a name derived from the Hebrew word root that means to be faithful. God, it seems, is not without a sense of irony. This lineage identifies him with the Jonah mentioned in 2 Kings. The book itself in its present form reflects a much later composition, probably after the Babylonian exile, like the book of Ruth, which was written at about the same period. The author opposes the narrow Jewish nationalism characteristic of that period. So let us turn and hear now from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go, go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his God. They threw cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, what are you doing? Sound asleep, get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. The sailors said to one another, come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? for the sea was growing more and more temptuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, 
The men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. And then they cried out to the Lord, please, please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from raging. And then the men feared the Lord even more. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. May God add a blessing (laughs) to the reading of this word. without saying sometimes the Bible gets really, really weird. And I have come to believe that it is actually the utter weirdness of the Bible, the absurdity of it, sometimes the laugh out loud ridiculousness of it that can be evidence of the extraordinary wisdom and truth that we find hidden within it. Uh, The less the Bible makes rational, conventional, predictable sense to me, the more deeply I seem to be drawn toward it. Uh, Some people read the Bible to simply confirm what they assume they already know about God or about how God works or to verify the ways they believe God always has and always will work in the future. But it takes a great deal of courage and a little imagination to read the Bible and expect to be astonished by it. To be astonished by what we don't know, to be challenged by what we are often reluctant to admit about ourselves, to be bewildered by what we thought we knew was true that turned out to be an illusion after all, and to be startled by the Bible's often hidden truths that have the great power to change everything about us, if only we will listen. But of course, it is the listening part That's often the problem. God has always had a difficult time trying to get us humans to pay attention, which I think is why God inspired some of the biblical writers to make it a little weird sometime. Um, Maybe God figured, hey, let's let's mix this thing up a little bit. Let's Let's make some weird stories here, toss in some unbelievable, strange, maybe even some scandalous stuff like a a talking donkey 
or a couple of kid mauling she bears or wait I got I got one says God uh, let's do a giant fish that swallows and later throws up a wayward prophet named Jonah that that'll be a fun one right <laughs> I'm guessing that the story about Jonah and his cetacean like sea monstering prophet swallowing foe isn't uh, so strange or shocking to you as the stories we've already looked at talking donkey uh, kid mauling she bears um, you've heard this story before maybe lots and lots of times and even if you can't rationally accept this notion that maybe a real person was actually swallowed by a giant fish and lived to tell about it you can at least infer some kind of Sunday schooly type moral to the story and what is that presumed moral to the story the moral I think it goes something like this uh, do not ever pretend that you didn't actually hear God's call and then think you can just turn from it or run from it or hide from it or resist it because God will eventually find you and God will track you down and make your life really miserable until you finally come to your senses and you do what God had been calling you to do all along. We assume that's the moral of the story here um, with, of course, varying degrees of divine harshness depending on the mood and the disposition of that childhood Sunday school teacher who first told you this story. <clears throat> and I will say I really like, I like that moral of the story, at least this part about not being able to run from God or from truth or from our present reality or from our divinely inspired mission to which we are called running and avoidance and denial these usually don't work for very long God or the truth or reality it does always seem eventually to catch up with us I did a lot of exploring on how the Hebrews have understood this this particular text and the ancient Hebrews and a lot of Christian mystics who have come after uh, have long settled on that particular interpretation of the story that you don't run from God because God will eventually find you and I think that's because it captures so beautifully the nature of the human journey that we all take toward maturity and transformation I think we all experience this universal journey in life in which we go from control and illusion to disillusionment and a loss of control to fleeing or resisting the reality that comes with that loss to then experiencing the belly of the whale season that feels like this huge void to finally discovering something new about ourselves that we didn't previously know until, until we find liberation. And with that liberation comes some new purpose for living. I think if you go through any hardship in life that turns your world upside down, that journey will feel something like that. A painful divorce, a recovery from addiction, the loss of your faith, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job that you loved very much. What all these have in common is a loss of control or actually the loss of the illusion 
that we were ever in control to begin with. And so in those moments we run and we hide and we experience the disillusionment of the dark void. And it is lonely and it is horrible. But maybe if we spend enough time in that void, we, we find the courage to do the hard work and then we confront our shadows and our secrets and we gain in the process a new consciousness. And then we experience liberation and a new purpose. I remember talking to somebody in my former church who had built this extraordinarily successful career and climbed the ladder and amassed along the way a great status and wealth only in a heartbeat to lose that job and this massive and rather bloody corporate restructuring. And he still had plenty of opportunities going forward lined up, but he fell into this deep depression and then addiction. It was the loss that hurt. It was this dark belly of the whale kind of season for him. But over those two years or so, he got help and he found sobriety. And he came to me one day and he said, you know, it's strange, but looking back, it, it's almost like it, it was all for the best. And he described that journey as a rebirth, which is in part what the story of Jonah is all about. What most people remember when they hear the Jonah story is that this prophet gets swallowed up by a giant fish because he refused to do what God was asking him to do. But if we make the story about Jonah simply about a giant fish and a childish temper tantrum, so to speak, I think we're going to miss the real, most amazing, shocking, and scandalous part of the story. Let me give you some backstory here. Uh, God wants Jonah to go preach to the Assyrians. But for Jonah's people, the Assyrians are public enemy number one. And the Assyrians had attacked and pillaged the Israelites for years. They had threatened their way of life. They had taken their wealth. They had occupied their land. The Assyrian Empire, we might describe it today, is the ancient version of the axis of evil. And Nineveh is the capital city, the very hub of this evil empire. And God says to Jonah one day, you know, those Ninevites are the worst of the worst and my plan is to wipe them off the planet, but I can't do that in good consciousness because um, they need to know first. And so uh, I, uh, I'd like you to go tell those people exactly what prophets usually tell people, which is you're a real screw up <laughs> and you better do better or you will die. Now, I admit I have a few very special Ninevites on my personal list <laughs> that I would love to call out in the name of Jesus. I bet you do too. Uh, if you knew already that God was giving you in advance a blessing to go call them out publicly, wouldn't that be super satisfying? <laughs> uh, lots of angry tweets. I, my thought was a, a big billboard on the side of the road with a picture of that one person with the text right next to it, world's biggest loser. <laughs> Even God says so, right? <laughs> if you had God's permission, even God's blessing, wouldn't you be all in? And yet Jonah's not. Jonah doesn't take God up on the offer. Instead, Jonah takes a boat in the opposite direction. And God tells him to go speak against his enemy, the Ninevites, to command them to repent, and Jonah goes M-I-A, which is weird. And that leads to the part of the story you just heard read, 
where a storm rages on the sea and the ship's crew figures it out. It's Jonah's problem. And so they throw Jonah overboard and Jonah gets swallowed by a giant fish and three days later, uh, that fish spits him up on the shores of where? (laughs) Nineveh. What are the chances of that, right? And Jonah gets the point. And so he unwillingly and unenthusiastically goes to the city. He stands on the steps of the Capitol building and he preaches this pathetic little three-word sermon. Repent or die. (laughs) Only he does it with far uh, less um, sincerity than, you know, most preachers would because he doesn't want to be convincing. He does it with far less volume because he doesn't want anybody to hear. It's the world's shortest sermon ever preached. Repent or die. No cool illustrations. No catchy metaphors or funny jokes. No altar call with somebody on the piano playing just as I am without one plea. Just repent or die. And it's so uninspiring. But the crazy thing is it works. And despite his lame, half-hearted sermon, the people of Nineveh actually repented. And they changed their ways. And God doesn't wipe them off the face of the planet after all. And it's a great story. And it's an infuriating story. Because it's the exact opposite of what Jonah wanted for those good-for-nothing Ninevites. Rather than celebrating the redemption of his enemies... Jonah scampers off and pouts like a child. And if you read through this whole story, at the very end, it ends with with Jonah sulking on a hill outside of Nineveh. And he admits to God why he was so reluctant to call for his enemy's repentance. He says, I'm paraphrasing, I didn't want this stupid job anyway, God, because I knew that you were gracious, I knew that you were merciful. I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yep. That's a problem. It's a problem not just for Jonah, but for us. Why? Because like Jonah, we really, really, really want to believe that God hates all the same people we hate. Do you know what Jonah tells God at the end of the story? He says, I would rather die than for my enemies to be spared. I'd rather die than see my enemies redeemed by your indiscriminate, unapologetic, boundaryless mercy that apparently holds no one accountable for their no good, rotten, horrible deeds. Yep, it's a major problem. I don't know about you, but I really need my enemies to stay my enemies. Because without my enemies, how am I supposed to feel better about my own righteousness? I mean, without some very public screw-ups to point my braggy little self-aggrandizing moralistic finger at, who am I going to blame for all the world's problems? So part of the moral story is that God is willing to love anybody. And it's not hard for any of us to believe it's true for us. But it's nearly impossible to believe that it might also be true 
for everybody else. I've mentioned before this story that Donald Miller once told in one of his books. It was a question that was posed to him in his elementary school class by one of his teachers. And the lesson was on values clarification. The question was this. If there was a lifeboat adrift at sea, and in the lifeboat were a male lawyer, a female doctor, a crippled child, a stay-at-home mom, and a garbage man, and one person had to be thrown overboard to prevent the lifeboat from sinking, which person would you choose? And Miller said he was pretty sure that everybody in the class voted to throw out the lawyer. I love that. I only love it because in the story there's no preacher, okay? (laughs) Miller says, I do remember, however, that the class did not hesitate in deciding who had value and who did not. And we humans tend to live our lives as if we're adrift on a lifeboat at sea and there's not enough room for everyone and someone has to be thrown overboard. And so we go through our lives comparing ourselves to other people, always trying to prove that we're worth our spot and others are not. And Jonah sees the world that way and what makes his strange story, I think, so relevant is that Jonah is a kind of avatar for how we too see the world in these moral categories of winners and losers, the redeemable and the irredeemable, friends and enemies, the deserving, the undeserving, And the story doesn't tell us why God sees the world differently. It simply functions as a kind of parable. And it reminds us a lot of another parable, one that Jesus told one day about a father who had two sons, one of which wanders off to Las Vegas or Nashville or Cabo or someplace, and he squanders his inheritance on worldly passions only to return home with this feigned remorse only because he's just run out of cash. And the father has mercy on him and embraces him and throws a party for him. Meanwhile, that good son is off in the corner pouting like a toddler, a lot like Jonah. Apparently, radical mercy is God's nature. And we don't know why, and we don't always like it. But maybe there's one other really maddening question here in the story, and that is, is it really that easy for God to have mercy on Ninevites, the worst of the worst? You can think of some people who abuse power, people who abuse children, people who abuse the powerless and other people, people who abuse their status or their influence or their wealth or their politics for self-gain. And in those cases, mercy never comes easy for us, but God seems to have this very different calculus. There's an easily overlooked detail in the story that I only really picked up on uh, this week. I've preached this text a million times, it seems, but here I found a new revelation. It explains why God is apt to be more merciful than we are. When Jonah tells God that he'd rather die than see those Ninevites get spared by divine mercy... God reminds Jonah that it wasn't just the so-called bad guys of Nineveh who were spared. God reminds Jonah that in Nineveh, as it says, 
There are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. And then it says, and also many animals. I love that little detail. Also many animals. What it says is that every day in Nineveh, as all those bad guys are carrying out their dirty deeds, innocent children are playing in the streets, and women are hanging their laundry on lines, and cattle are grazing in the country fields, and farmers are tilling the soil, and doctors are dressing wounds, and teachers are busy raising up the next generation, and garbage men, and Uber drivers, and mothers and fathers are all just doing their best to get through a hard world. Maybe all these good and innocent people are the 120,000 reasons why God didn't want to destroy the city. Because there is no act of retribution that can be so precise that it can avoid the inevitable collateral damage that is always suffered by the innocent. Uh, Hellfire missiles that target known Al-Qaeda terrorists we know can simply wipe out entirely innocent families and neighborhoods. I wish I didn't know this, but mothers of school shooters who visit their sons in prison or in graveyards will never, ever, ever stop crying. Remember Reginald Denny, this innocent truck driver driving his truck through South Los Angeles on the one day when the verdict is released and the LA uprising begins and he is nearly beaten to death by an angry mob. And this just months after Rodney King driving through LA is nearly beaten to death by police officers. Our our efforts to exact justice and retribution often lead to the suffering of innocence. And our forms of retribution only perpetuate that suffering for future generations. And so it says, and also many animals. Reminding us that everyone has a mother and a father and a friend and a family member and a neighbor, maybe even some cattle. And the story reminds us that if we have no empathy for the suffering of the innocents who do not deserve destruction, then we have failed miserably to understand the heart of God's empathy and the nature of God's boundless love, even for you. Now, takeaways for today, God is uh, gracious and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love even toward our enemies. And God's mercy is good news only if it's good news for everyone. And uh, the gospel is the worst good news you and I have ever heard. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.